Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hillspring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. I, uh, I'm 48, and August still um, kind of dreaded a little bit, number one, because I know it's going to be 1,000 degrees outside. Can I get an amen? But there's just something about August, like as a kid, and I spent most of my summers as a kid growing up at Daisy, and the first of August meant I had to go home, and it meant there were bedtimes and stuff like that. And so, but it's just, it, it's that time of year to get things going again, and if you're a teacher, administrator of school, be here next Sunday, because uh, it's kind of fun. We're going to get some stuff planned for you and for the kiddos. We want to make sure that we're all ready to go to school, and all the mom and daddy said amen. So I know I tell a lot of stories about my grandfather. We called him Pop. Um, I am the, f- I'm the youngest of five Kellogg grandkids. There was three boys, I'm the youngest, and then there were two girls. And so because I was the youngest, I was kind of the last one to, to spend my summers there. The other ones grew up, got jobs, went on to college. And so, uh, so because I was the last, I was the most loved. I was the funniest. I was the favorite. I was the best looking. The, look, the list just goes on and on and on and on and on, right? So my, that's actually a picture of my mom and dad. I'm the kind of the baby. My grand, they were young. They were young grandparents twice. Uh, they loaded all five of us grandkids up into a motorhome and took us to California for a month. We were way much better behaved back then. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and um, so they, they just were young. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. My granddad was born in 1929. He would have been 16 in 1945, and one of the, like you would ask him, one of the biggest regrets is that he didn't get to go fight in World War II. Um, World War II was kind of at its peak in 1945, and he was just a little bit too young. He, he had a couple of options. Number one, he could lie, and I know there's some people that did that. He could get his parents to sign a waiver that he could go into the military, or he could have joined the Merchant Marines, and one of his best buddies did do that because you could be 16 and sign up with the Merchant Marine. So his mama was no way, in any way, shape, form, or fashion, going to sign a paper for her little boy to go off and fight. And so he just said, well, I'll just wait until I'm 18. By the time he was 18, the war really was basically over, and he was already married with with a baby on the way. So being born in 1929 in a little wide spot in the road called Daisy, Oklahoma. I know I tell a lot of stories about Daisy. Um, Google gets you there. If you go straight south out of Tulsa on on Highway 75, you go through... Uh, Glenpool, then you go through Henrietta, Okmulgee, McAllister. Between McAllister and Antlers, there is one exit. It's the Daisy Clayton exit. And I know a lot of you, like when you're going to Atoka, you'll send me a picture of Daisy. I love that. It always gives me fond memories. But Daisy's actually about 20 miles from there. It's right on the Indian Nation Turnpike, which, by the way, is the only free exit on the Oklahoma Turnpike system. And you can thank my uncle for that because that was in negotiation of the land stuff. So anyway, Daisy in 1929 was actually kind of a booming little community because you couldn't get there from anywhere. Like there were two general stores, uh, there was a schoolhouse, uh, there was a barber shop, there was a hotel, there was a restaurant, and and, little, and, and most people in, in Daisy in 1929, my granddad was born, if you got around, it really was either you walked or horseback. There, there were a couple of cars, my great-grandfather actually owned one of the two stores, but he also owned a big truck that you could haul, you know, a load of crops in, or you could haul a cow or two to town or whatever. And so today it takes about 20 minutes to get from Daisy to Atoka. Back then it took the better part of a day because you're taking 
uh, old county roads, and that would probably be generous calling them that. A lot of times they were just trails, and it literally took quite a while. And so sometimes when you go to town, people would ask for a ride, and so my granddad would say that the back of Grandpa Guy's big one-ton truck, there would be people riding into town and, and, and doing whatever. My granddad, when he, when he passed away at 91, he'd seen a lot of change, okay? He'd gone from growing up, and a lot of people at Daisy, I know there were cars, and I know they owned a truck, but a lot of people at Daisy got around horseback. He'd gone from that to where you could literally travel the world in an airplane, or, or you, he saw them put a man on the moon, and he saw the advent of the self-driving car. And let me just tell you, when you're 89, 90, and 91 years of age, we refer to it as the filter, at 91, it's completely worn out. There is no filter. You know what I'm saying? The Bible says take captive every thought. At 91, you don't even harass those thoughts. They just come out of your mouth, right? So you can only imagine taking my 89, 90-year-old grandfather to a store that has a self-checkout. Uh, the filter was not there, and so he always had some very opinions about the whole self-checkout system and that America was going down in a bad direction, right? So Throughout his life, a lot changed. Throughout my life, a lot has changed. People's changed. The world has changed. Technology has changed. So there's not a lot that seems constant in this old world, but there's one thing that is constant, and it's God's word and God's ways. God's ways work every time. Modern psychology is only about 100 years old, and you can take biblical words that were written over 2,000, some over 3,000 years ago, and I'll be dadgum if those biblical principles that were written then still apply today and how to manage your family, still apply today how to fix your marriage, still apply today on how to be a good neighbor or be a good boss or be a good leader or how to manage your stuff and how to manage your money. Over the centuries, though we have put people on the moon and now we have self-driving cars and self-checkout lines, God's principles still work. They worked in the 1930s in Daisy, Oklahoma. They worked in Germany in the 1500s. And they work today in Sand Springs, in 2022. So when Jesus came on the scene, the education system of the day was religious-based. The, the, the public education actually took place in what was called the synagogue, okay? And so the synagogue served a twofold purpose. It, it, it double-worked as, number one, it was a place of worship on the Sabbath day where the town would come and a rabbi would teach from the Old Testament scrolls or, or what have you. But it also, when it wasn't being used on the Sabbath day, it was the place of education where young boys could come and be educated. Okay, now a synagogue was different from the temple. Most towns had a synagogue, but there was only one temple and it was located in Jerusalem. And the temple was only intended for worship. There wasn't education that took place at the temple. That was for the synagogues. And only, bo only boys could participate in the public education system. However, it was the expectation of parents, specifically it fell on the fathers, that you would educate your daughters in the home. And that day there were a couple of groups, and so since the education system is, is pretty much dominated by the religious system, and, and because the religious system really also served as a political system as well, there were two kind of groups that, that dominated the synagogues, thus the education, thus the culture, and that was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Okay, so they agreed about some things, but they disagreed about some things, a lot like maybe Baptist and Methodist or, or what have you, that there were some things that they agreed about, but they also disagreed. They dominated the synagogues, they dominated the education system, and really that dominated the culture that Jesus was born into in his day. 
And that religious system, from what happens in the synagogues to what happens in education, it lacked genuine humility, okay? Now, you did put on a good pious show, but many times that just smacked of false humility. You know them. They're Alabama fans, right? Okay, just saying if you're awake, it's gonna be that kind of day. All right, so Jesus in Luke chapter 18, he tells a parable or tells a story and he, he kind of pushes on, like he was always a pushing against this false humility, so to speak. And so he tells a story and, he, and it's kind of a tale of, of two individuals. All right, so Luke chapter 18, verse nine is where I wanna start. It said, then Jesus told this story or, or parable and notice who he's talking to. Notice who his audience is. He told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and they scorned everyone else. I'm gonna throw that up in different translations here in a minute. Verse 10, two men went to the temple to pray. So Jesus is talking to people who, who they're really proud of themselves. They really feel like their stuff is all together and they kind of, like they kind of were condescending to everybody else, okay? And so now he tells a story and it says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, okay? Keep in mind the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they kind of dominated the education, the political culture, the religious culture. And the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. He said, I thank God, right? It's gotta have a W in it. I thank God that I'm, not like other people, like cheaters and sinners and adulterers. I'm certainly not like tax collectors. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my, probably sounds better if he talks like Mr. Howell off of Gilligan's Island, but that's another thing, right? So like, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. And then verse 13, he tells the other story of the other guy that's there praying. He said, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed, almost in his atone as, God, I'm not even worthy. Instead, he beat his chest with sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner, end quote. Repeat the line, I'm sorry. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In this parable, Jesus, he has two characters. He's got the Pharisee, and he paints him in a negative line. And then he's got this tax collector that would have been despised by everybody around because he was a sellout to the Romans. And, and he paints this guy like begging God for mercy. And so the Pharisee's kind of in this negative line. But the truth be told, the Pharisee was just a constant example that was always set before the young men that were growing up in that society. Because the Pharisees and the religious elite, they dominated the education system. They dominated the worship system. They dominated the culture. So if you're a young man, your teachers, your fathers, your grandfathers, the people you look up to, if they behave this way, then you are going to grow up and you are going to do what they do. You're gonna behave that way. They were the teachers, the community leaders, this lack of humility. God, I'm so thankful I'm not like all those other people, right? God, I'm so glad I grew up in a godly home where we all cheered for Oklahoma State. 
Lord, I thank you that my father went to OSU and not OU, right? Okay. So, so these young people grew up watching this. And it was even made attractional to the young girls over there. Like, girl, make sure you go get you one of them Pharisee men, right? And so Jesus shows up on the scene and he pushes hard against this arrogance that was deeply ingrained for centuries in the culture. When Paul would write one of his letters to the Christians that lived in the city of Philippi, this is how he would describe Jesus. It's a beautiful, poetic passage describing the humility of Christ. And he says to you and I as Christians, he says, you must have the same attitude that, Je that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, like Jesus was divine. Like he was supernatural God. But though he was God, he didn't think of equality God was something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human. And when he was born as a human, he knew what that meant. He appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on the cross. When Jesus said, yes, Father, I will go be the solution to humanity's sin problem, he knew that putting on the human form, he would also be tried, convicted, and crucified as the lowest of society as a criminal. He humbled himself to do that. Verse 9, therefore God elevated him, because he was willing to humble himself, God elevated him to the place of highest honor, and he gave him the name above all other names, and everybody says, are y'all awake this morning? Like, y'all mad? Was it the OU joke? I don't know. Like, they haven't even lost a game yet. Like, you can still be happy. It's fine. Technology changes. The world changes. But God's word, God's principles, they're still good. Even though they're centuries of year old, they are still good. 2,000 years later, they still work. So in this series called Lead, we're taking these leadership principles out of the Bible. Here's the deal. Even if you don't see yourself as a leader, there's gonna come a time that you will be. There's gonna come a time that, that maybe you're a mama or a daddy or maybe you're in a career and you have employees under you or maybe you're a teacher or administrator in the classroom. There's going to come a time that God is gonna have you in a position like, I don't wanna leave anybody. That's okay. There's still gonna come a time where you are leading and these lead principles that we've unpacking and been talking about, if you follow them, they will lead to good things in your life. If you do them, they will even make you a better Leader, this isn't just a leadership series. This is about leading you to good things in your life. If that makes sense, say amen. So this week's lead principle that will lead to good things in your life, here it is. It's the last shall be first. The last shall be first, meaning humbly prefer others. I wanna go back to the story Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, and I wanna look at the prayer that the Pharisee prayed. And I want you, as we're looking at this, I want you to count how many times he refers to himself. I, me, my, okay? So the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank God that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income, right? This guy's favorite song was, Lord, I lift my name on high. Like he loved himself. I love me, I love me, I love me, right? 
This guy's just doing what the culture had always taught him. Me first, you next. Me first, you last. And Jesus came and he pushed against that. So Luke chapter nine, remember I, I said pay attention to who he's talking to? I want you to look at Luke, Luke chapter nine. It's in the fill in the blank, but I just think it's, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a correlation here. I wanna put it up in, in the King James Version. They retranslated it last year. And it says this, he spoke this parable unto certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Like I'm banking on myself. I have got it all figured out. So they trusted themselves, but then they despised others. Like I'm counting on myself, but yet I'm looking at all of you people with contempt, okay? There's a direct correlation with those who trust in themselves and yet easily despised everyone else. Like if I'm, if I'm a really big deal in my own mind, then I'm just going to be condescending to other people. And this is what arrogance will do to you. It, it will cause you to give a lot of grace to yourself, okay? But you're gonna judge everybody else by a different standard than what you would hold yourself to. Oh, man, I meant to help you with that thing. Um, but when they don't help, it's like, well, you must not care about me, right? So I cut myself a lot of slack, but then I'm holding everybody else to a really high standard. I judge myself based on what I meant to. I judge myself based on my intentions, but I judge you based on your actions or your failures or your inactions. Oh man, I meant to send you a birthday card. Got busy, kind of forgot. Well, I guess they don't care about me. They didn't even remember my birthday. You know what I'm saying? Like we give ourselves a lot of grace, but we hold everybody else to a different standard. We don't even hold ourselves and the Pharisees that were there that day, they relied on their own ability while cutting themselves a lot of slack, but yet he's condemning and judging that tax collector who begged for mercy. Let me put it up on the screen, Luke 18, 13. This is the tax collector. Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. We're reminded throughout scripture, not only in the teachings of Jesus or the rest of the New Testament, we're also reminded throughout the Old Testament, specifically in Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom. Like if you want a life that will lead to good things, do what Proverbs says. And throughout scripture, and here's one that's multiple times, it says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why Jesus said that day, there were two guys praying. One of them was like, me, 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 me. And the other one was like, oh God, please forgive me. And Jesus said, this guy was the one that was justified, not that guy. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Throughout scripture, here's this idea. I'm just gonna throw stuff at you. Proverbs 22, four, you can write this down, you can put it down. True humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. Sign me up, amen, everybody? Proverbs 11:2. pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. James 4:10. humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Matthew 20, verse 16. And this is where the lead principle comes from. So those who are last in this life now will be first then in eternity. And those who are first now, <laughs> you're going to the back of the line. You're going to be last, all right? But that is, 
Like with our human nature, that don't make any sense. Like the first will be first. You know what I'm saying? That makes sense. Come on, the first will be first. Like Ricky Bobby says, if you ain't first, you're last. And there can't be two number ones. First service, just look at me. Like, who's Ricky Bobby? All right. We laugh at Ricky Bobby because that's funny. But let's be real, there's a little bit of Ricky Bobby in all of us. Some of us are just bold enough or brave enough to say it out loud or to act on it. So it's a lead principle. It leads to good things in your life. But also if you're a leader, and we all are, we all are, it, it will serve you well. And today I'm, I just, I just wanna show you, I just wanna take some time to almost make an argument of why, like, hey, here's why humility really works well in your life. And maybe to convince you that let, let's put on more humility because humility looks good in the mirror. It, it, it just does. So humility produces a couple of things. Number one, it produces a better performance. I mean, God said that, like, if you humble yourself, I'll give you honor, I'll, you know. So, but there's data to back this up. There's psychological research to back this up that humble people do better. In 2006, the group did some research. They asked 135 college students a series of questions. Then they took the answers from those questions and they deducted that, you know what, we're gonna put this kid in the humble category. They didn't ask him, are you humble? They just asked him this series of questions and based on how he answered, they said, this one's humble, this one's Ricky Bobby, right? Okay, and so they did all that. With overwhelming numbers, the humble students outperformed their Ricky Bobby counterparts. I mean, could it be that the fact that they were actually teachable and wanted to listen to other people and, and learn instead of wasting all this intellectual energy defending my own opinion or pushing my ideas or making sure everybody knows my theory. Humble employees outperform their counterparts. Humility minimizes drama. It just, it just does. And so if there's less drama, I can focus on productivity. I can focus on being a better employee instead of the drama that's going on. I just, I find it interesting that data actually backs up the biblical principle that's thousands of years old. Secondly, self-control. Humility produces self-control. Humble people have a disciplined ability to show self-control. Many times humility is companion to maturity. Like I wish 48-year-old Brent could go back and talk to 28-year-old Brent and tell him some things. Like, stop it. <laughs> just as we get old, I mean, some of those things just don't matter. The things we used to get all wound up like a Tasmanian bottle rocket, it just, it just don't matter anymore. As we get old, as we become more mature, as we become more like Christ, we should be becoming more humble. And the more humble you become, you just have more self-control. If you are obsessed with yourself, the statistics show you have less control in your life. Number three, better leadership. A leader who is willing to admit mistakes. Man, I'm, I missed that. I am so sorry. Instead of blaming everybody, well, you gave me a little bit. If y'all, if you hadn't, blah, 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 I wouldn't have. You know what I'm saying? And, and just a humble leader that's like, man, I am so sorry. I messed that up. And a, and a leader who's willing to say, man, I'll tell you what, the team around me, that's what makes this place special. The people around me, I can highlight other people's strengths and their contributions. 
You model being teachable. That produces a leader worth following. Get real, y'all. One of the hardest things, one of the hardest things in life is being in the middle of a discussion, not that we argue, but a discussion, and right in the middle of that discussion, you realize you're wrong. That's hard. But one of the things I love about Hillspring culture, man, we really, just come as you are. Just come to church as you are. Really, man, I, I hope and pray there's no judgment here. Amen, everybody. I just hope that's the culture of who we are. It permeates from top to bottom that there's no judgment here. Amen. Okay, we all amen that, so don't judge me, all right? So on Wednesday, um, I was in our bedroom and I heard a bang pop. We live in the country. There's lots of bang pops that go on out in the country. You know what I'm saying? And so I didn't really think anything of it. And matter of fact, our bedroom kind of is over a big old oak tree that'll have limbs sometimes fall on the roof or sometimes fall on the air conditioner that's out there or whatever. And I didn't, I mean, I heard bang pop, but I didn't, I didn't think anything about bang pop. I didn't think anything about it until, until I went to bed. And I lay there in bed and the house just felt, just felt warmer. And I looked at the thermostat and it was actually six degrees warmer than what we normally sleep at night, okay? And so it was just hot. I was laying there. And your boy can't sleep. You know what I'm saying? Where are all my people that like to crank down the AC and cuddle up in a big old blanket and go to sleep? Where are you at, all right? Look at that. Hope heaven's cool when we try to sleep, amen? All right, to be fair and balanced, where's all my warm sleepers at? Like you're sleeping in flannel PJs and it's August. Help me. And so I'm laying there and Jerry's, he's heavy sighing. And I remembered the bang pop. And so I get up and I get a flashlight and I go outside, the dogs are out there and, I'm, and they are massively confused. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, you know, wait, dad. And so, yep, sure enough, I go over there and our two air conditioners are side, side by side. One's upstairs, one's downstairs, and the downstairs unit is off. Oof, okay? So I come back in and I share the bad news with Jerry to which she says, well, don't even think about cuddling tonight. It's way too hot for that. <laughs> I love you, baby girl. Story's not over. So I call Uncle Randy and he comes and assesses the damage and um, we can replace a couple of parts and he says, I think that will fix it. But he says, I know if you replace the whole unit, I know that will fix it. And to, at this point, I would really like to graciously appreciate my father-in-law, Rick, um, that he gave Jerry this beautiful, wonderful gift, okay? That if before her there are two options, she will always choose the most expensive option. And so we're kind of having this conversation. I've already told Randy, well, let's just kind of duct tape it together. It's fall and just get me through the next few weeks or whatever. And then my most expensive option wife says, well, let's just get the new one. I'm like, we're not getting a new one. Um, to which um, we kind of... Uh, you know, being the leader of the house, like, we're just, we're just gonna get it fixed. 
I rolled my eyes, and now I'm heavy sighing. <sighs> God's good, isn't he? Amen, everybody. God also has a sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> so about three minutes later, I'm thinking about it, and I find myself downstairs, the opposite end of the house, in the bathroom with the door closed where no one can hear me, and I'm like, hey, Randy, let's talk about them options again. How much was that new unit? <laughs> So do we know that the cheaper option will actually fix it? And he says, well, I think it will, but I'm not for sure. And he said, so you actually could be out about the $1,100 for the parts and still have to get the new unit anyway. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Blindside. I love the movie Blindside with Sandra Bullock and Tim McGraw. It's about the story of NFL athlete Michael Orr and how he really didn't grow up in anything. And Sandra Bullock is the Tui family. They just kind of take him in. And there's this specific scene in the Blindside that we quote often in our house where Sandra Bullock, who's Miss Tui and Tim McGraw, they're, they're in the bathroom and, and she's talking about just basically kind of taking him in and adopting him and, and so on and so forth. And, and, and the husband says something and she goes, well, she mumbles kind of, you're right. And he's like, wait, would you say that again? She goes, you're right. He goes, how does that taste coming out of your mouth? Like vinegar. <laughs> I had one of those like vinegar moments, you know what I'm saying? When I go back to Jerry and I'm like, I think we probably ought to put the new unit in. How's that taste coming? Never mind. So anyway, Randy will be installing the new unit tomorrow, all right? So leaders who always have the right answers. Like we shut down conversation. No, we're not, blah, 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 you know. Leaders who don't listen. There'll be a following. It just won't be very fulfilling for those who are following. And, and, and you won't attract the highest capacity people. Listen, being humble makes you a better leader. It helps you make better decisions. And in turn, you produce a better product. Amen, everybody. Number four, it creates healthier relationships. It does. People love being friends with humble people. Is it arrogant people? Sometimes they're hard to be friends with. Paul, when he's writing to Ephesians, like the newer Bibles, they, they headline this part of Ephesians, and it says spiritual relationships. And then he starts this whole passage where he's talking about being a husband and a wife and being a father and, and being a boss employee. He says this, he says, and further, Submit to one another. Like, be humble enough to submit one to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's just, it's just easy to be married to someone that oozes humility. It's just easy to be friends with someone that, that has this humility. Where do you want to eat? Oh, bunny, I don't care. I just want you to be happy. Which, by the way, that is my common response. That's what I say all the time, right? This idea of Mutual submission, this idea of humility, it works in marriages, it works in relationships, it works in companies. Humility builds healthier relationships. And number five, it creates a restful life. I, this, I say the best for last. Humility is good for your soul. Because if you're always walking proud, talking loud and drawing a crowd and you always have all the answers and if you just, arrogance is the tone of your day, and I'm always criticizing everybody else, and I'm always patting myself on the back. You know what? That's a lot of pressure to put on you. It's just good for your soul to live 
out of a place of humility. If I'm gonna walk and talk in arrogance, then I better be able to back it up, right? If you're gonna talk trash, you better be able to prove it. So when I lack humility, when I'm arrogant, I'm on that side of the spectrum, man, the pressure to be perfect is just suffocating. Nothing like being out on the golf course and coaching somebody and telling them, oh, let me tell you what you're doing wrong with your swing, and then you get up and the ball don't even, like you just, you just create this pressure on yourself, and if you're humble and you don't have all the answers, man, you know what? I'm taking all that pressure off of my life and I can just rest in that. If I'm gonna be critical of you, then I need to make sure when it's my time I do it right. But if I don't like that pressure, living out of a place of humility is good for the soul. It is a restful place. Humility is good for us on many levels. I could keep going. But I hope I've convinced you. Like, you got me. Okay, I I get it. I need to put more humility on. But how? I don't ever want to create a problem I don't give you a solution for. So how? How do I do that? How do I walk in more humility? So I'm just gonna give you a couple of practical steps, biblical base. Number one is be quick to listen. Be quick to listen. Arrogant people like to talk a lot about what they know and smart they are and all the answers. Listen, just, just be quick to listen. James 1.19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You all must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Learn to be a good listener. It is a biblical principle that touches a lot of areas in your life. It's a, dis- it's a discipline. It's a discipline to shut the flapper and open the ears. Because our default is we wanna defend ourselves. Our default is we wanna push our opinion out there. Our default is I wanna make sure everybody knows that my idea is heard. But if I am quick to listen and slow to speak, it is a domino that actually will produce humility in your life. It's a good first step is talk less, listen more to those around you. It's a good first step. Then secondly is confession. Did a whole sermon on this principle right here about three or four weeks ago. It is absolutely okay to say, I don't know. It is okay to not have all the answers. Remember we talked about this, this whole principle of strive to be the dumbest person in the room. Not because you're lazy, not because you wanna learn, but strive to surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Don't be threatened by that and just be willing to go, you know what, I don't have the answer. Will you guys help me figure it out? Absolutely, absolutely. So just, I don't, it's okay. You you can let the pride down. Man, I would love to know the answer to this, but I don't. Can you help me figure this out? And that confession, it is so freeing and it also creates humility in our life. And then, Lastly, gratitude. Gratitude does a lot. Gratitude is an important biblical principle. So just having a heart of gratitude. Remember when the two guys prayed? Oh, Lord, I thank you for me. You're welcome. You know what I'm saying? Like he was so thankful for how amazing he was. And and then the sinner over here was like, God, I, I just thank you for your mercy that I don't even deserve. This guy's, he's thankful for himself. This guy's over here, he's, he's thankful for the things around him. God, I thank you for the life you've given me. I'm thankful for the, the people around me. Just having a life of gratitude. Don't just say it, but man, I really do. Man, I really do appreciate you. I appreciate the people in my life. And here's what the attitude of gratitude that you begin to develop. It's a discipline, just like listening. It will begin to produce humility in your life. And that's a good thing. God, I'm, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm, I'm thankful. 
for your mercy. I'm thankful for the people of God. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.